Welcome to another episode of Me and the Market Goliath podcast. I'm your host, Kelvin. Today, we're very fortunate to have Michael Pompian join this episode on behavioral finance. Michael is the founder and chief investment officer at Sunpoint Investment. He has been advising clients for over 25 years. Prior to launching Sunpoint, he was a partner and national segment leader for the private wealth business at Mercer Investment Consulting. He was responsible for overseeing $8 billion U.S. dollars. Michael fine-tuned his advisory skills as a wealth management advisor with Merrill Lynch, a private banker with PNC Private Bank, and an investment analyst at a single-family office. This experience at a private bank, brokerage, and family office gave him different perspectives on the industry. Michael also has written five books, Behavioral Finance and Wealth Management, Advising Ultra-Affluent Clients and Family Offices, Behavioral Finance, Wealth Management, and Behavioral Investor, and his fifth book is currently in publication. Michael earned his MBA in finance from Tulane University and a Bachelor of Science in Management from the University of New Hampshire. Michael, thank you so much for joining my podcast. I'm very excited to have you speak today and help my audience understand the behavioral side of investing, especially helping investors out there understand the different investor biases people often fail to realize when they're about to make an investment decision. There are so many questions I want to ask on this topic, but before I ask them, as the Chief Investment Officer at Sunpoint Investments, could you tell us more about yourself and your finance books? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have been in the business, as I was saying, about 25 years. I started out advising what I'll call wealth management clients, private banking clients, call it in the one to 10 million range in US dollars in assets. and then. That was back in the late 90s timeframe and going into the 2000s. And at that time, I became very interested in behavioral finance. Back then, it really was not a recognized field of study in finance. The, the rational theories of finance that come out of the University of Chicago, Eugene Fama, efficient market hypothesis, really dominated financial thinking, you know, back then. And I just, you know, I was going through the late 90s doing my CFA and at the same time learning about efficient markets and so forth. And then also witnessing what was happening with the tech stock bubble, where you had companies that were, it seemed like the more money they were losing, the more valuable they were. Uh, and it was all about eyeballs and, you know, who was looking at websites. And it just, to me, that seemed completely irrational, especially as compared to what I was learning about in my CFA curriculum. And so I started to become interested in behavioral finance. And then, you know, we'll talk about it as we go into the podcast, but I started to have some ideas about how these ideas could be applied to the field of advising clients. And that's really been a focus is not the main focus, but a focus of mine in my career going back since then, since or 2000, so 20 years, I've been writing and lecturing and applying what I learn to my own client advisory work, which now I focus on ultra high net worth, having switched over to the ultra high net world in 2005. And in 2016, started my own firm called Sunpoint investments, Sunpoint with an E, investments with an S.com. You know, I, I still focus on ultra high net worth, but let me tell you, behavioral biases transcend all wealth levels. So it's not like, you know, wealthy people, you know, don't have irrational behavior. They do. It, it really transcends all, all wealth levels. 
it's just been a great addition to how I and the rest of the people at my firm advise clients. I'm doing podcasts now. Back then, you know, there really wasn't that much interested in, in behavioral finance. So uh, obviously, it's become a very important topic. Michael, I came across your profile because there was an article which was published about a year ago on Morningstar, which featured you as the contributor. The article was about a study which you conducted examining the relationship between the big five personality traits and investor biases. And there were so many interesting findings from that. Could you tell us more about this study and how you came across examining the relationship? And what does behavioral finance mean to you? That's a great question. So I wrote for Morningstar for over 12 years. I wrote a monthly column there and you can still see my work. I think they have still have it posted. I, I ended that about six months ago. I just got too busy with everything else, but I you know, did that for many, many years. And if you go back to my earliest work, really going back to the late nineties, what I focused on, you know, again, very early on was the relationship between investor biases and the Myers-Briggs test or the MBTI. And I wrote a paper, it was actually my first paper. It's on my website, if anyone wants to see it, sunpointinvestments.com, where we found some statistically significant relationships between some of the Myers-Briggs traits, such as introversion, extroversion, and behavioral biases, such as loss aversion. And so as I pay attention to what's going on in the field of psychology, I noticed that the big five, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute, also personality traits was actually, you know, some people were saying it was, you know, better, more important or more relevant than the Myers-Briggs test. And so I started to look at what are these, you know, big five personality traits and, you know, why don't I do a study on those big five as compared to behavioral finance, the way I did early on in my break. So that's how I started in with doing an, uh, an article series on, on the big five. Let's sort of deep dive into the big five personality traits. I guess a lot of the listeners here in Asia and across the world probably might have not heard of the big five personalities. Let's start off with the first one, the conscientious. So this sort of describes individuals who are efficient, disciplined, and then there's the agreeableness, which describes an individual who's usually friendly, compassionate, and there's the neuroticism, describes the individual who's sensitive, nervous, and then openness to experience. These individuals are usually creative or adventurous. And then lastly, extroversion, which is someone who's usually outgoing and energetic. It's interesting to hear that these personality traits are vulnerable to investor biases, such as loss aversion, status quo, recency, hindsight, confirmation, availability and overconfidence. And I'm sure a lot of retail investors out there have never heard of these biases before because they've never studied it. Could you help our audience understand more on these biases? Maybe you could share some real-life investing world examples into these biases that we've mentioned. What I'll do is I'll give you some examples of some common biases that we see when I'm dealing with my clients, you know, some some of the top biases in my books. I reviewed 20 behavioral biases, uh, which are all relevant. Of course, some are more common you know, than others. So I'll give you some examples of these. And then what I can do is then I, I can relate these biases to, for example, conscientiousness. We won't have time to go through all the big five, but I can relate in terms of a study that I did what conscientious 
what biases they have in comparison to other of the big five personality traits. So let's start with a very, very common bias called loss aversion. Loss aversion, as it sounds, is the idea that some investors feel the pain of losses greater than the pleasure of gains. And this is for those of you who have studied behavioral finance, Daniel Kahneman, who was a, one of the people that I started reading you know, way back in the late 90s, he was writing about loss aversion back then with his partner, writing partner, Amos Tversky, who sadly has died at this point, but he won a Nobel Prize for his work in what is loss aversion. And he identified the fact that many investors feel the pain of losses. And his quantification of that is investors feel the pain of losses two times more than the pleasure of gains. Of course, every investor is different, but that's what his work showed. And so what that means is that some clients are just averse to taking risks because they don't want to feel the pain of losses. And it's very common. You know, people work hard for their money and to see it just evaporate, you know, is, is not a good concept for them. So that's a very, very common bias. Another common bias that we see, you know, very often is called status quo bias. And what, what that is, is when investors tend to keep things the same, you know, to keep the status quo, not make changes. You know, the world, however, is changing all around us all the time. So you cannot keep your portfolio exactly the same all the time. You know, rebalancing is a part of a discipline process that investors need to undertake. And, you know, when stocks are running, 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 it's very common to say, oh, I don't want to rebalance. Stocks are going up. Similarly, when stocks are going down, people don't want to rebalance into stocks. Oh, stocks are going down. But we have to try to maintain a disciplined policy. And so some clients get to a status quo where they don't like to make any changes. Another very common bias is called anchoring bias. And that happens when people or investors are influenced by a purchase price or an arbitrary level of, a, of an index, for example. If I bought a stock at 100, that becomes my reference point or making a decision about the future value of, of, of whatever that stock, you know, where I should buy it or sell it, buy more, sell it or whatever. And often what happens is people will buy a stock at 100, it will go down and then they don't want to lose money, you know, they're loss averse. So they, you know, maybe stick with an investment that isn't potentially a good investment and end up, you know, with a underperforming particular investment in their portfolio because they are unwilling to you know, take a loss and move on, but they get anchored to that, whatever price that is, as opposed to looking at, you know, what is the rational price of a stock? So anchoring, people getting anchored to prices they purchase at things at or index levels. I'm not going to buy stocks unless the S&P gets to X or Y or, you know, the Chinese market gets, goes from Y to Z, you know, using these arbitrary levels as opposed to looking at the underlying actual values. Taking all the biases and putting them into a basket, how can investors mitigate the risk of them committing a bias? For example, confirmation bias. How can investors validate these biases or, or sort of do a self-check on mm -hmm. these biases? Great question. So confirmation bias, let's just define that one because that is a very, very, also very common bias where investors tend to seek information that confirms their beliefs as opposed to 
finding information that may contradict their beliefs. And we see this all the time in, for example, in television, you know, the political television shows, especially here in the U.S. You know, there's some that cater to the Republican Party, some that cater to the Democrat Party. And if you're one or other of those, you tend to watch news that reinforces your own beliefs as opposed to trying to understand the other side. And that happens all the time in investments too. So that's confirmation as we seek information that confirms our beliefs. In terms of what to do about it, well, the first step is education. Investors need to be educated on what the biases are because if they don't know what the biases are, then they'll never be able to to correct them. In my books, I review 20 of the most common biases that I believe are present in the investors that I work with. First step is education. And the second step is when you are making an investment decision, you know, you can run a checklist. In my books, I have a test to see what what biases you might be subject to, you know, whether it's loss aversion or anchoring or any of the ones I talked about. And then if you are subject to those and you are making a, you know, can be a large investment decision, for example, you can run through that checklist and say, am, am I making sure I'm not subject to confirmation? Am I anchoring to a certain price level? Am I feeling loss averse? You know, whatever the case may be, there are ways to mitigate these biases, but it all starts with education. On top of education, let's say we're past that education phase. Is there a mm-hmm. point where retail investors or investors in general might need to seek financial help? to sort of eliminate or mitigate the risk of these biases. For example, they might need to seek for a financial advisor. My next question to that, we can answer the first part first, but I guess there's a second part to that question is, would portfolio managers or financial advisors commit the same investment biases too? Yes, you know, absolutely. I mean, in terms of your first question, when should an investor seek professional advice? I mean, I think in my experience, I've been doing this, you know, 25 years, I've run across, you know, many individual investors who, you know, do try to do it themselves, you know, manage their own money. Like, for example, I have a new client I'm working with now who's in his 50s. And I've known him for many, many years, a professional venture capital investor. We started talking just socially. And we were talking about his portfolio and he, he started to tell me that he's not doing a good job managing his own portfolio. Why? Because he's getting emotional about his decisions. He's not sticking to a plan. He's making decisions based on, you know, friends he's talking to, you know, and it's always important to have a framework and a discipline around how you're investing your money. And that's what the value of a financial advisor is, you know, to be able to instill that discipline into the process. And, you know, that process often solves for many of the behavioral biases that investors have, sticking to that discipline. Now, we're all humans, and we all make decisions, even with that discipline, that may go astray. And we may, you know, make mistakes. Everybody does it. And so we just try to mitigate the number of mistakes that that happen. And in terms of financial advisors, absolutely. I mean, I teach some coursework in behavioral finance to financial advisors. And these financial advisors recognize and understand that they have their own behavioral biases. And those biases can become part of the advice that they're giving to their clients if they're not careful. So it's definitely something that the more and more education that's out there for financial advisors, you know, there's many, many sources of information. I'm asked to give 
lectures and things to financial advisors. I've done it globally, you know, for many, many years. The good news is that, that financial advisors are getting educated on their biases and for good reason. It's good to hear that, you know, financial advisors are trained to get lessons on these biases. I think, you know, these biases can be quite deadly, especially when money is involved. Out of all the biases that we've mentioned earlier in this podcast, we talked about loss aversion, we talked about confirmation, we talked about availability bias, we talked about status quo bias. In your opinion, which of the biases are deadliest to a retail investor? Well, I will answer that by saying that it depends upon what type of investor you are. And so what I mean by that is, in my work, I've, I've identified four what I call behavioral investor types. And the way that the behavioral investor types get defined is really along two spectrums. One is the risk tolerance. So the four investor types are the preserver, the follower, the independent, and the accumulator. And those start with low risk tolerance and go to high risk tolerance. And so the preserver is a very low risk tolerance investor. And those particular types of investors are subject to certain types of biases. And here's a really important thing that I've done in my work is that I've identified two different types of biases, emotional and cognitive. Emotional biases are about how people feel, whereas cognitive biases are about how people think. And so when you're dealing with both a preserver, which is the lowest risk tolerance, and the accumulator, which is the highest risk tolerance investor, both of those types tend to be driven by emotional biases, meaning how they feel about things. So for example, the low risk tolerance investor is subject to things like loss aversion, the fear of losing money, things like status quo, which I mentioned before, keeping things the same. So those are the ones that are, as your words, deadliest for the lower risk tolerance investor. When it comes to like the highest risk tolerance investor, things like overconfidence, you know, many, many people who are aggressive investors have been successful in business, for example, or some pursuit where they make, you know, money. And they think that they can translate that success from whatever they've been successful in to investing. And it's really apples and oranges. Being a good investor, being a disciplined investor may have nothing to do with being a successful entrepreneur. So overconfidence is an example of something that can be deadly to a, a very high risk tolerance investor. So it really depends upon what type of investor you are as to know what are the most important biases. And that's also in my work. My book, Behavioral Finance and Investor Types, has that information. I want to focus on one of the big five personality traits again, which is the mm -hmm. conscientious personality trait, because I feel that I fit in that category. I think this personality trait should resonate with investors out there, because after all, they should be careful or mindful of their investment decisions when money is involved. I'm just curious to know, is overconfidence or confirmation bias a common investor mistake for retail investors out there, for those that are conscientious? Yes. According to my work, those two are, are the most common biases of the conscientious. And so the conscientious, as you may all know or may not know, as I can explain, is people that are conscientious tend to be very high in preparation, meaning they do a lot of prep work before their tasks. They don't procrastinate their tasks. 
They tend to pay attention to details. They're very disciplined. And, you know, that's actually very good for investing. But sometimes that can lead to overconfidence. They think they've done so much, you know, work ahead of time. They're very disciplined and things like that, that maybe they've missed something and they're overconfident in their abilities. So my work has found that they, they can be very overconfident. And, and as you noted, also confirmation bias. For example, if you, if you do a lot of preparation work, you know, in, in advance of a task, for example, like investing, you might seek information, but you may find that you, you know, if you look at carefully, you might be seeking research or information that confirms your existing beliefs, which is the definition of confirmation bias. So when it comes to conscientious in, investors, you have to watch out for, you know, for overconfidence, confirmation. And another one is availability bias, which is essentially investors seek information that's available to them. You know, they might do a Google search and, oh, there pops up an article. That, that's the one I'm going to pick, you know, maybe as opposed to going to the third or fourth or fifth page on the Google search and finding information. And I definitely want to support your response on that. To summarize your article titled, What are the investor biases are the conscientious most prone to? 81% of the 121 people were surveyed and were subject to the personality trait, conscientiousness. Of these 98 mm. people, the people were subject to various biases. And it came out about 70% were subject to overconfidence. And that's an interesting statistics. For me, I think it's sort of a self-check for me as a, you know, a conscientious investor. And I feel like there is uh, some sort of correlation between personality traits and the biases. I, I do have a question on that, especially, you know, given that the markets are quite volatile right now, I would say, do these biases often occur when investors try to invest in a volatile market as opposed to a more of a steady state. Is there a difference where investors make more mistakes during a volatile market as opposed to a steady market? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Especially volatility on the downside. You know, if markets are, are going down, if, you know, people can remember, I'm sure, the most recent period in March of uh, 2020, about a year ago now, where markets were cratering, right? The coronavirus scare was, was coming into full effect. And during that time, some investors tend to think the worst. And it, it was a very scary time. I mean, the economic fundamentals were very much disconnected to what was happening in the stock market. Why? Because there was so much central government support, particularly here in the U.S., for what was going on uh, at, at that time. So remember back in the 2008-2009 timeframe, there was a a lot of government support, you know, for the markets and for the bad assets you know, that were happening going through the system back then, TARP program and TALF and these, you know, various quantitative easing programs. What happened in, in 2020 was, you know, four to five times what happened back in 2008. So there was a dramatic turnaround in the markets in, in March and April of last year. And going up until today, you know, we're coming into a little bit of volatility here, but, you know, it, it more or less, you know, went continuously up, you know, since then. During a period like March 2020, you know, when you look at the actual economics of what was happening to the actual economy, unemployment was way up, stores closing all over the place. Investors might get the idea that I should just sell everything and, and go under a rock. 
And of course, that was the wrong decision. And so, you know, you can fine tune your risk around the edges, but if you have a plan that you have decided to stick to, you know, whatever it is, 70% in risky assets, you know, you can adjust it or, you know, go to 68 or 72 or, you know, things like that. But, you know, abandoning your plan is, is unlikely to work over the very long term. And, you know, if you have a long time horizon with your asset, you know, markets have proven to go up over, over long periods of time, you know, equity markets. It's definitely true that during periods of volatility, especially on the downside. Michael, thank you so much for your answer on that. I want to touch on behavioral finance a bit more and the correlation between behavioral finance and market volatility. Would you say the best remedy to market volatility would be to sort of, you know, turn off your computer, turn off the news so that you're not exposed or vulnerable to the biases that were mentioned? What would be the best remedy to sort of mitigate the, the risk of biasness in terms of investing as well as being able to handle market volatility? So I would say that the best way for investors to, to manage their biases, again, going back to something I said a little bit earlier, is it all starts with education. We need to understand what these biases are and, and make sure that you know, we understand what, what type of investor we are. Because remember, going back to my investor type, the, the four types, it's important that investors try to understand what their type is. Once they understand their high-level type, then they can dig down and see what are the most common biases I might be subject to? Now, with that said, depending upon the type, there are two or three common biases or most impactful biases for each type in my work. So that's a good guideline. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're an aggressive investor, you may not have a bias of a conservative investor, you know, one or two. So, so there, these are not like absolute things. So it's important to educate yourself across the 20 biases in my books that are out there so that you understand all of them. But there are tendencies, you know, for let's just say conservative investors to have loss aversion or status quo or some of the other ones that are having to do with risk tolerance types of investors. And then once you understand your biases, that's only one part of it. You know, the question is, what do you do about it? The best solution is to have an advisor that can talk you through a disciplined process. Because the discipline process will mitigate many, many biases. But if, if you are someone who just doesn't either doesn't want to work with an advisor or whatever the case may be, and you do want to invest on your own without an advisor, the key thing is to understand these biases. And when you are making investment decisions, whether it's buying an individual stock, buying a, an ETF, or setting a risk target level, or, you know, investing in bonds or whatever the case may be to make sure that you understand what type of investor you are and what biases you're you're likely subject to and then do a small checklist when you're making big investment decisions to make sure you're not subject to these biases i must say that whatever the cost of an advisor it's it's worth it in terms of the long run wealth that you're likely to achieve with a disciplined process thank you michael before i conclude this episode Given that you've written so many behavioral finance books, if there's one thing that you want your readers to take away from your books, what would it be? So I think the biggest contribution that I have made to the field of behavioral finance, in addition to being 
you know, early on in the process, you know, there were not that many of us writing about behavioral finance, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and that was somewhat on the leading edge. But one of the things that I've done in terms of a contribution is, is I've identified the difference between emotional biases and cognitive biases. And so again, back to emotional biases have to do with how people feel about things. For example, loss aversion is a, an emotional bias. As an advisor or one of your friends, I can tell you, oh, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about losing money. It's, it's not that bad a thing. You're not going to change my opinion. I feel like losing money is bad. I can't just change my mind about that. That's how, how I feel. Versus another bias that's fairly common is called mental accounting, which is a cognitive bias. And in mental accounting, what happens is people put money in different either actual accounts or mental accounts. So for example, this is my vacation money. This is my education money. This is my bill paying money. This is my spending money, et cetera. And so if you have these little pots of money all over the place, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it means you're probably disciplined in your savings, but you might have cash, 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 cash. And if you look through all of your whole portfolio, you might be 40 or 50% in cash and you're not looking at your money holistically. And that's not necessarily a, a feeling bias. That's you're not thinking about that correctly. And so with education, I might tell you, look, you can have these different pots of money, but let's, let's roll them up into a, a, an entire portfolio so we're managing our money in a portfolio context. And that makes sense to people. Why not? So again, the big thing is try to understand, am I an emotional investor or am I subject to cognitive types of biases? And then from there, understand what investor type you are. And then from there, dig into what are the individual biases that I'm subject to and try to get some awareness of that when you're making decisions. Thank you, Michael. I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. Before we conclude this episode, how can my community in Asia and across the world reach out to you or find more information about you or your books? Well, my email is michael at sunpointinvestments.com if anyone has any specific questions. And our website is sunpointinvestments.com, you know, S-U-N-P-O-I-N-T-E, investments with an S.com. And there's many resources on the website. And in a, about a month or two, we're going to be having actually a behavioral finance tool on the website where people can diagnose their, their biases and their investor types. So that'll be interesting. And then on amazon.com, if you just type my name in, you'll see my books. And actually, I do have a, a fifth book coming out called Behavioral Finance in Your Portfolio. All my books are published by Wiley, John Wiley and Sons out of New York. And that will be coming out in April. You know, that's it. That should do it. Thank you, Michael, for your time. I think I'll be pre-ordering your book very soon. Appreciate Thank you, Calvin. Much appreciated. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the speakers in this podcast. Any content provided by guest speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to represent or malign any institutions, religion, or group. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not your financial advisor. If you like this podcast, please follow us at our Instagram page at mmarketgoliath for new updates to our next episode.